Lee Wilson is one of those. Lee has come down uh, apparently with a very bad case of the flu. So you might want to send her a text and say, sorry to hear, Lee, that you've got the flu, but thank you for not coming to church. <laughs> I appreciate it. Don't spread that stuff. You get, you sneeze, stay away. Well, maybe not sneeze. But if you're sick, don't shake hands, don't spread it, don't pass it on. Agreed? Good. Thank you. So... It's not nice to miss church and miss out on church, but it is a sacrifice that you must make. Just as an aside, I've had people who've got the cold or the flu, they come up to me and they shake my hands and they say, oh, I've been sick. <laughs> well, don't shake my hand. <clears throat> Just smile nicely. Um, so I'm Lee Wilson this morning. As you can... No, I won't say anything. We're going to read God's Word. It's from Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Uh, I'll update you on Pastor Charlie a little bit later on in the service, and Andrew Forbes is not in a well way either, so we'll come to that later in the service. We come to the end of our series that we've been looking at, how God equips us, how God invites us and wants us to be involved in serving Him, how God wants to use us is our theme for this morning. This is Nehemiah chapter 3 and we're going to read, I encourage you to take it home this afternoon and read the whole lot. One commentator wrote one sentence on this uh, chapter and then moved on to chapter 4, as many people do. It's a whole long list of names, not meaningless names, unknown names to many of us, but significant. And God has used this passage to achieve his purposes throughout history that we'll mention a little bit. Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and I'm reading from the NIV. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, adjoining section and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. I'll just wait for my wife to catch up because she's doing the Bible reading in the next section. It's a doozy. <clears throat> Verse 3. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, rebuilt the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of... No wonder she had the flu. Meshezebel made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banana, that'll do, <laughs> also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors, or if you look at the footnote, their lords or governor. The Jeshinar gate, the old gate, was repaired by Jehoida, son of Pasia, Pashia, and Meshulam, son of Bossadiah. They laid its beams, put its doors with its bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jaden of Miramoth, uh, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next sections, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. 
Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjourning this, Jediah, son of Harumph, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of the house district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Interesting. May God help us to understand that reading. Let's pray. Father, even this section, even this section of your word, which is at first passing, difficult to understand why you put there, but it's there for your purposes and for a reason. We pray that through that passage and other parts, truths of your word this morning, that you would be pleased to speak to each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Title for this morning is God Wants to Use Me. God Wants to Use You. God Wants to Use Us. That phrase, use us, can be used in an angry negative way, can't it? People have been hurt, whether by the business world, their bosses, I felt used and then discarded, or whether it's from a relationship or anything like that. But the word is also used, I mean, and that's awful, to be used and to be felt used and discarded and devalued in that way is an absolutely awful thing to do. But the word can also be used, we use it in a positive way. Um, it's a wonderful way when that's used. In the NFL football, it could be the quarterback who's saying to the coach, use me, use me, I want to get in the game. Or you get selected for the cricket team, but you end up being the 12th man, which can be quite disappointing because you want to be used. You want to get off the bench and you want to get in the game. Use me, use me as a way of saying, I'm available. I want in, use me. Well, God doesn't want any of us, if you follow the Lord Jesus, any of us on the bench. He wants us off the bench in the game, or if you like, involved in the work, doing what we can, as illustrated by Nehemiah 3. It all begins, though, of course, with us knowing personally the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. Uh, that's what gets us on the team before God will start to use us in his way to achieve his purposes. So question, do you know God in Christ? Have you been personally impacted by his devotion and care for you? Have you come to that point of understanding in your life where you realise you matter to God? That he's not mad at you, that in fact he's mad about you, that he sent Jesus to die for you. God made you, he knows you and he's waiting for you either to accept him and respond to him, or he's waiting for you to say, Lord, I'm available, use me. He wants to use you. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a life for you to live. He's got a book for you to read. He's got a gift for you to use, and he's got a message for you to share with others. Heaven is waiting, watching, and longing for you to be part of his team, involved in his church, serving his kingdom. God wants you to be the hands and the mouth of Jesus. When you walk closely with him, in fact, when he is central to your life, when your radiate, life radiates out from him, his first priority in your life, then he will use you and he will work through you and you will experience divine appointments. You'll experience his nearness. You'll experience him, his smile on your life and you'll experience him working through you 
not all the time, not 24-7, but you'll have these experiences on a regular and ongoing basis. Bill Hybel says, not much else compares to being used by God to influence people or to advance God's purposes. Not much else compares. Of all of the highlights that you can have in terms of experiences in this world, this is way up top, being used by God. It's absolutely thrilling. Do you want to be part of what God's doing? Do you want to be part of what God wants done? Ball's in your court. If you do, and if you know God personally, if you feel that you've received His forgiveness, if you've sensed Him working within you by His Holy Spirit, then respond by simply saying, do I want to be involved in what God's doing? I'd be honoured to be. It's a privilege. Where do I sign up? When? Where? What do you want me to do? But of course, not everybody does that. Many people exclude God from their life. They exclude God from their timetable and from their agenda and they settle for much less, for so little. You don't know what life is about until you give your life to Him. And then life takes on a new level, a new meaning, a new depth. And God is keen for what is best for you. God wants you to know Him and to grow in Him. And that's why God wants to use you. Not in the first negative sense, but in the second sense. That He knows what a thrill it will be. He made us. He knows how we are shaped and what our purpose is and he wants us to achieve it because he wants the best for us. Like a parent with any child, I used to say to my kids when they were at school and my kids, fortunately, are gifted to be very bright, as bright as their mother, which is a thankful point. Not as bright as their father, much brighter than he is. I always said to my kids, we said to our kids growing up, I don't care if you're top of the class or bottom of the class, do your best. If you do your best, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. Achieve your potential. And they blew us away with what they did. And we are still amazed, aren't we, sweetheart, at how gifted our kids are. I look at Rhonda and I think, where did these kids come from? (laughs) She looks at me and she says, not from you. (laughs) I may have exaggerated that slightly. God crossed space and time, stepped out of eternity into our world and only our world. If you're fascinated by the cosmos and by astronomy, only our world. Of all of the galaxies, in all of space, our galaxy is the visited one. Of all of the stars and of all of the planets in this galaxy, our planet is the only visited one. That's what God thinks of us. We are precious to him. And so God wants to use people, he wants to use his followers to announce to other people that moral failures matter to him. People who have sinned, people who have fallen short. When Jesus came, he travelled throughout Palestine and he showed people, whatever you've done, you matter to me. The woman caught in adultery, the tax collectors, the swindlers, the liars, the thieves, the murderers thief on the cross, the rich, the poor, the male, the female, the children, the elderly, the educated, the not educated, the Jew, the Gentile, you matter to me. Come to me and I'll offer you new life. And the Lord Jesus died for sinners, which we will remember in a couple of weeks. Paid for it in full, debts cancelled. Now there is no reason why anybody can't come to him. And Jesus says to us, his followers, tell them 
spread this truth, this word, especially to moral failures, to people who know they've failed, especially to them. You are my ambassadors. You represent me. The Holy Spirit will empower you and he will energize you and he will give you courage and words to say. Some people will listen and will understand. Not all will. So therefore, be gentle and respectful in how you speak. Those who do listen and understand will repent and they will receive Jesus. They'll receive him. And then they will grow and then they'll be thrilled like you will be to find out that God wants to use you. That's number one. God wants to use us to announce that moral failures matter to him. Number two, God loves to use people with weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, probably one of the greatest evangelists, certainly one of the greatest church planters and missionaries throughout the centuries, writes these words. He had some pretty remarkable spiritual experiences. He gives us a glimpse of some of them. If the Apostle Paul had this much revelation and understood this much theology, he has written in the New Testament under the Holy Spirit's inspiration this much. He knew a whole lot more than what he conveyed through his, the letter to the churches. There were just hints and glimpses of it, and it comes out in this chapter. But this section particularly, in 2 Corinthians 12, <clears throat> verses uh, 7 and following, Paul talks about, uh, because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God loves to use people with weaknesses, is the point. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then he works through me. He uses me to achieve his purposes. We all have weaknesses. <clears throat> In fact, God has no other choice, does he? He has to use people with weaknesses because we've all got them. We're all flawed. The Lord's ways are much higher than our ways and so he often surprises us in what he does in ways that we do not expect. We think that he's going to do this and he ends up doing something else. We think he's trying to work this out and in fact he's got another plan and agenda. And usually, always, behind that is this motivation, tell moral failures that they matter to me and I want them saved and forgiven. God is not willing that any should perish. That's his agenda. Let me put it this way. God uses people with weaknesses... God is not impressed by our strengths, by our intelligence or by our self-sufficiency. That doesn't impress God. In fact, our self-sufficiency partly cheeses him off. It's pride. He looks for those who are poor in spirit, who are humble. What's a weakness? Well, it's not a sin. It's not a vice. It's some inherited or unchangeable limitation that we all have. It's a handicap. Physical, mental, emotional, whatever. D.L. Moody, who was a terrific, amazing evangelist whom God used powerfully at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. 
a huge guy, had a very low intelligence, struggled with learning and reading, but powerfully used by God, and in fact became the author of books. I suspect he didn't write them, I suspect he preached them and somebody else wrote them and he's, he's the author of them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, some would say, preacher, English preacher, suffered from chronic depression, spent three to four months of a year cooped up in southern France on holidays. Needed to do that in order to perform for the other eight months. Could not cope. Chronic depression. You would find him on his knees, bawling his eyes out. Powerfully used by God. Johnny Erickson Tata. Paraplegic. Powerful. I said last week, Nick Vajusic. What a servant. Went to Kurong this week. He's got a new book out. I think it's called something like Hands and Feet for God. God's never limited by our limitations. As I said at the beginning of the service, he's taken this great treasure and he's put it in jars of clay. Reading through Acts, in Acts chapter 14, you have this wonderful story where the Apostle Paul and Silas have come to this town called Lystra and they preach. They actually perform a miracle of healing. This guy who was crippled from birth gets, Paul looks at him, sees he has faith and Paul says, stand up. The guy stands up, he's healed instantly. Well, the whole town, the whole city just erupts with excitement and they end up making a statement like, uh, the gods have come down to us and then you've got the Apostle Paul and Silas trying to stop them, they're going to offer sacrifice and everything else. And then in verse 15, Paul eventually, you know, tear their clothes and they eventually say, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, just like you. Powerfully used by God, but don't forget, we too are only human. God did it, not us. God uses us in our weaknesses. There's a song on the radio, it's on my phone now, and it's something like, I'm only human after all. I'm only human after all. Don't put your blame on me. You know that song? You won't hear anything else through the sermon now. You'll just be playing that in your head. Weaknesses. God likes to use people with weaknesses. <coughs> we qualify. Weaknesses cause us to rely on God. Weaknesses prevent arrogance in us. Weaknesses help us to identify and to feel for others. Hudson Taylor said, all God's giants were weak people. So our weakness is not an excuse. God likes to use people with weaknesses and he likes to work powerfully through us because of that. Thirdly, God uses people who have failed in their past and who could very well be broken in the present. God uses those who have failed. Here is a list of those out of the Bible. Lot failed. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? Failed miserably. Compromised his life and yet... You read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, it talks about him being a righteous man who was tormented in his soul and conscience day after day. You won't get that out of Genesis. But that's God's evaluation of him. Here is this dropkick who compromised and who failed and who even offered up his daughters in a terrible situation, whom God, looking into his heart, sees that he was a righteous man. A failure used by God. 
Jacob failed, yet God worked through him. Moses failed. At the age of 40, he commits murder, which delays God's program, I would expect, for another 40 years that he spent in the back of Midian. And then he failed when he returned because he struck the rock twice and that excluded him from entry. Moses, a failure, used by God. Jonah failed, pursued by God. David failed, Solomon failed, and yet Solomon writes Proverbs, much of it, and Ecclesiastes. Peter failed. He boasts, he brags, he denies Jesus, but is restored and he's marvellously used. The woman at the tomb failed. Mark chapter 16, the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. There is a shorter ending and a longer ending, but most Bible scholars think those endings are not part of the original text. Verse 8 says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out, having Jesus having appeared to them and said, Go into Galilee. There, tell everybody that you have uh, seen him, just as he's told it's the angel saying that to them. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They failed. They didn't do what they were instructed to do until later. Paul failed, persecuted the church, Christians murdered them, had them killed. Terrible failure, transformed, used by God. God transforms failures into the faithful. If you failed in your past, God can deal with it. There's no sin he can't forgive. There is only one unforgivable sin and you don't have to worry about it. Ruben Torrey, who was a companion of D.L. Moody, whom I mentioned before, was a marvellous scholar, author, Bible teacher, lived a pretty bad life, hung around with bad people, got dramatically converted, started ministry with uh, D.L. Moody. Became rather famous through doing that. And one day, one of his past friends saw his name advertised in his local community that he was preaching. His friend wrote out a list of what they got up to when they were young people before he became a Christian, a whole long list. His friend went to him and thought that he was a hypocrite and said to him, if you don't stop this nonsense, I'm going to give this list to the newspapers. <clears throat> Torrey took the list, went out in front of the audience that night instead of preaching from the passage that he was supposed to preach, shared the list. How about that? Here are my failures. <clears throat> and then he preached the gospel. God can forgive me for all the things I have done. God can forgive you. God uses failures, people who are broken. And finally, from Nehemiah chapter 3, we get the truth that God wants to use every believer. Nehemiah 3 is not a dull recital of forgotten names. It's, not a list of, it's a list of people who played their part. Interestingly, in Nehemiah 3, it starts at the sheep gate and you have to be careful with Nehemiah chapter 3. If you look it up and look at some of the commentaries and some of the sermons that have been preached over the years, people do weird things with Nehemiah chapter 3. It's more creative imagination than it is interpretation of the text. One person goes through and identifies there are something like eight different gates, I think it's eight, <clears throat> and they look at the name of each of the gates and from that they derive spiritual applications. Well, that's interesting. There's another phrase there which talks about they repaired it in front of their family home, in front of their families, their house. And people use that to talk that this passage is teaching us about putting family first. Charles Spurgeon, of all preachers, 
got to verse 8 where it says they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And he used that expression, the broad wall, to bounce off into a sermon, which is a very good sermon. Not what this means, though. The broad wall is that there is to be a separation between us and the world. Very creative, very insightful, but not what the text says. So you need to be careful with this stuff. But I do think it's deliberate that the Holy Spirit puts first, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priest went to work on the sheep gate. Why is the sheep gate mentioned first? Well, you've got to be careful. But I do think it probably points to this truth. The sheep gate was the gate that took the sheep into where the temple were for sacrifice. As it was, the sheep gate is mentioned first because God is to be first in our life. They were restoring the worship and uh, the sacrifices of God in their terminology making God a priority. Well, that's what we need to do. When you read through the section, you'll discover that each person who was involved had a manageable section. The thing is like four kilometres around, something like that. It's far too much for any one person to do the whole lot. So everybody had a section that they were to work on and to work on together, these assigned tasks. Everyone was involved, 28 times in the chapter it talks about, and next to him or after him. Everybody had a part to play. That's the point. You look at who was involved, who does Nehemiah name? Well, priests, Levites, temple servants, rulers, common people, gatekeepers, guards, farmers, goldsmiths, jewellers, perfumers, makers of perfume, merchants, women in verse 12. They didn't just make morning tea and meals, they were cutting bricks and building walls. Men far away, verses 2 and 7, from various towns who commuted in from that neighbouring towns around. <clears throat> One guy reading this chapter realised that God does not need a thousand masons and carpenters. Interestingly, none of them are mentioned. They were there. They would have to be there. Some skills are needed. Somebody was leading and directing and showing how to do this. You get me to build a wall like that without any instructions or assistance and direction, then it will not stand. It'll fall over. I have built a brick wall in my time. It was three bricks tall. As far as I know, it's still standing. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't. God used ordinary people, not the professionals, not the trained, people who are willing to work. That's what God looks for. People who are faithful, get this, people who are faithful, people who are available and people who are team players, teachable, team players. Faithful, available, teachable. F-A-T. God uses fat people. Faithful, what's the next one? Last one, teachable, team players. I won't say his name correctly, but is I think it is, Vigo Olson. He was a man. Have you heard of him, Graham? How do you say his name? Vigo Olson. He helped rebuild 10,000 homes in Bangladesh after the 1972 war on destruction. 10,000 homes he helped with others to rebuild. He derived inspiration. He said, quote, I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. There were priests and priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers and women, but no expert builders or carpenters were named. This chapter, this passage, he went, oh, well, 
God uses people with weaknesses, normal, ordinary people. Remarkable story. Or one commentator, one preacher tells a story. I'm not sure of which country, but he was amongst natives. And uh, he was teaching them to play a game which he loved, which was uh, croquet. You know, you have a little u-shaped thing on the on the lawn and you have a ball and you've got a mallet and you hit the ball and you've got to hit it through you go around a circuit and you get to the end and you win understand put up your hand if you have no idea what i'm talking about is it croquet yeah um if you don't know i'm i won't take any more time but come and ask me next and the, and the missionary the, the natives were watching the indigenous people watching him and and them play and uh, they were yelling and competitive and western people are very competitive so it's all about winning it's all about who's first and if you have a chance to knock somebody out well you do and so they taught these native people the indigenous folks they wanted to play so they did or the whole you know tribe of the village or whatever it was joined in they showed them how to put their foot on it and how to hit it and how to aim it and so they all did it and the leader the guy who was leading eventually got to a point where he could hit his ball so hard that it would hit the opposition ball way off course and his ball would go through and he would score. And the missionary said, that's what you should do. And he said, why? Why should I do that? You see, from the missionary's point of view, it's competitive, it's about winning. From the native indigenous guy, it's about, they're not used to competing, they're used to assisting and doing things together. So he didn't do that. He hit the ball and he went through, he ended up winning. And the missionary said, you won, you won. And he didn't understand that. When he had finished, he went round to help the person who was last and instructed him on how to play. And when they had all finished, when they had all got to the end, then they all started dancing around. We won, we won. From his, their perspective, it was, we're in this together. We help one another achieve the goal. It's not about you winning, it's about us winning get it you ever seen geese in v formation fly have you ever noticed why sometimes why one arm of the v is longer than the other do you know why that is because there are more geese on that side than on the other side <laughs> what do you derive from that well the geese created by god actually create this upward air current it assists them to fly, in fact, experts say, or people say, it gives them a 71% greater range than if a, a goose was flying by themselves. Note this, you've heard this before. And if one of them is sick or wounded, then two will fall out of formation with the one who is not well, and the three of them will then descend and land in a safe place. The other two are there to help and to protect until the other one is healed and restored and they can all fly on together interesting isn't it the geese at the back of the line what are they doing honk honk like us you know traffic jam at the back honk honk and they're doing it to announce i'm still here and i'm okay and the honking actually encourages others to keep going to share the load god wants us to be in v formation flying together supporting each other you know that not the issue are we doing that Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do. Going to make morning tea this morning? Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it as unto him. 
Going to get in your car and drive home this morning? Drive as if you're driving a chauffeur for the Lord Jesus. Be polite on the road. Let others in. Don't rush. Be a witness. Going to a coffee shop this morning? Smile at those who are serving you. Be nice. Be pleasant. Engage them in conversation. Ask them how their day is going. Do something special for them. If you can afford it, I've heard stories of people doing this. I'm going to do this. I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but I'm going to do it. Is that when you go grocery shopping and you pay for your groceries, pay for the person behind you. You'll have to hang around to do it somehow. I've read that story. Saddleback Church do that all the time. People go through, I mean, you don't just do it willy-nilly. You look at someone who needs that extra hand, that extra encouragement, that lift, and you... You can sense and see them. Help them. Pay for their petrol at the petrol station. If you have the means, God gave it to you, use it. Represent him. When Saddleback Church, they, they do it so often, I don't know how they started or what they said, but when it happens, the person at the back who is the re- on the receiving end of that wonderful gift says to the teller, the clerk, whatever, check out chick, why'd they do that? They would go, oh, they're from Saddleback Church. They do that all the time. What a witness. What a wonderful demonstration of God's grace and love. If you have the means. So what's your part in building the wall? If someone were to write a summary of our church over the years, who was doing whatever and what were they doing, how would you be listed? Would it be favourable? And time's gone, but finally, the fifth way, you say God loves to use people like you and me to encourage and face the afflicted and the hurting, just like I was referring to then. God's heart breaks for those who are mistreated, who are bullied, who are discriminated against, and who are judged and despised. That's the biblical truth. We cannot comprehend how deeply God feels for the poor and the homeless, the hungry, the handicapped and the elderly, the sick, the discriminated against, and the abused. God could have sent angels, but he made an executive decision that he wants to use us, involve us, to convince people that they matter to him. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. God wants to use you. God wants to use you to announce that moral failures matter to him. God wants to use you Um, as a person with weakness, God loves to use people with weaknesses. Just own up. Don't use it as an excuse. Just make make yourself available. God uses people who have failed in the past because he can deal with it and who are even broken in the present. God wants to use you and every believer to build the wall, to build the kingdom of his son. God uses people to assist in the afflicted and the hurting. We serve God in our families. We serve God in our church and... We serve God beyond the church. It's not this or this or this. It's all three. And depending on your season and stage in life, this one, the family, might have a higher percentage. But there is still something serving in the church and there is still some going on on the outside. You could be at a stage in life where family is no longer the priority it needs to be in terms of time and effort and energy. So you can give a lot to the church. But don't neglect also to focus on those who are outside. Because that feeds into what God's agenda is. He wants lost people found. 
Take a step. Let yourself be available to God. He wants to use you. We're going to pray. Let's bow together. Let me invite you this morning while your heads are bowed and you silently before God, take a step. Present yourself to God. Say to him, here I am, Lord. I'm available. Tell him, use me in any way that you see fit. Ask him, direct my steps, Lord, and open my eyes to see the needs of those around me. Lord, hear the silent prayer, our silent prayer this morning, and soften our hearts and help us to hear your prompts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.